Have you ever had advice given to you? Have you ever received some advice that has been uh, important to you, that has come back to you at key times? You know, when I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about those times I have received advice. I can remember a number of years ago now, whenever I was learning to ride a motorcycle, I can remember I was doing it out past Ballyclare, and I can remember the voice of the uh, instructor in the headset. I had this earpiece and as we were doing, coming to certain junctions, he would tell me to take left, take right, and so on. And there was one time I was coming to this long, sweeping corner. And when you come to a long corner in a motorcycle, one of the things, your natural tendency is, is to ease off on the throttle. You get a bit nervous. You get a wee bit shaky. You get a bit apprehensive about what the road's going to be like, the quality of the road, because you don't want to break when you're on a, on a corner on a motorcycle. And I still remember, even to this day, I can still remember the instructor's voice came over the headset and he said, relax, keep going, relax, keep going. He knew what the road was like, so, he just kept the thr- so I just kept the throttle on, knowing and having confidence in what he had told me and what he was saying to me. Even to this day, when I come to long sweeping corners, although I don't hear his voice anymore, in my mind, I repeat those words, relax, keep going. It might seem like a trivial thing, but it's something that has stayed with me uh, since then, all these years. You can think of times in your own life where you've gone through experiences. Maybe someone gave you advice. Someone gave you a word of encouragement, which, has been, which came back to you, which helped you get through it. You know, we can think of times where maybe something our parents had told us as, as young children came to us over and over again. Maybe even we've had advice from people who have gone through bad experiences and they see us going through the same experience and they've, they've given us a word of advice to go through it, to get through it. You know, those, those are important moments. The title of my message this, today is The Cure for a Troubled Heart. The Cure for a Troubled Heart. Because we can have troubled hearts by what we're going through, the experiences that we're having. And sometimes a word of advice A word in season, as it were, can be the right thing to help us get through that moment. Jesus was uh, notorious, we could say, uh, for giving words of advice, giving words that were a word in season that was appropriate, words that speak through time and through to to us today. One such time was um, uh, is in John chapter fourteen. I'm going to look at one verse here. It's all I'm going to look at. This one verse. John chapter 14, verse number one, it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. John chapter 14. Jesus had been preparing the disciples for, uh, for what was to come ahead. In John chapter 13, he had started to talk to them. You remember the moment where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? We're getting to the point now in Jesus' ministry where his preaching and teaching verbally is coming to an end. He's getting to this point now where he is about to face his passion. He's about to be betrayed and given over to the Roman authorities. And the disciples have been building to this moment. Jesus has been laying line upon line and getting them ready for it. Really, you could feel the tangible change in the conversations the, the marked difference in emotion whenever Jesus starts these last few days, last few moments before his, uh, before his passion. You could, I'm sure you could feel it the atmosphere at the time where the whole city was ready. 
that Passover was coming. There was excitement about that there. But Jesus, this itinerant preacher, had come to Jerusalem once again. And the atmosphere was, was maybe turning slightly hostile towards him in the streets. Maybe there was a bit of apprehension. Certainly the disciples had been told that Jesus was going to die. They'd been told that he is the Messiah, that he was going to leave them. At this point, in, in, before this, in John chapter 13, Jesus washes their feet. It says actually in John 13 that he was troubled in his spirit and he told them that one of them was going to betray them, betray him. So they knew someone was going to betray him. You can imagine these men had spent three and a half years together. They had grown tight. They'd grown close together. They were knit together. You can imagine them really as a small family that traveled around and the news that one of them was going to betray them. I'm sure it was like, oh, who's this? Who's going to be this? Now we can read in the scriptures the clear pointing towards Judas going to betray him. But for them, they wondered. They didn't pick up on the interplay and on the, the finer details. So they were starting to get apprehensive. Jesus is going to leave us. Someone's going to betray him. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. Peter, you might not betray me, but you're going to deny me three times. These men were, were troubled, challenged by this. Why Peter? Why, why would Peter do this? You can see that they're, that they're coming to a point now where pressure is really coming upon them. Yes, the focus of the scriptures is upon Jesus because this is his passion. This is his mission. But these men who are following him, who are going to become great voices for him and for the, uh, for the ministry, but these men were in the crosshairs. Pressure was rising upon them and they were getting to that point. They're starting to worry what could happen. They knew how vicious the Roman authorities could be, what they could do. They knew how quickly that the tides of public opinion could change. And as they get to that point, they start to worry. They're starting to be concerned. And Jesus takes a moment, a moment out of his trouble, out of his troubled heart, because he's a man. He's, a, he's fully man and fully God. He's, he's fully man. He's challenged. He's troubled in his spirit. And he takes a minute to comfort these men, to encourage them, to steady the boat, as it were, to keep them on the path, to keep them going forward. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus, isn't it? He takes time just before, his, just before his passion, just before he is given over to the Roman authorities and to the Jewish authorities. Just before that, he takes the time to help someone else. It's a wonderful image of Christ in that way. We're not saying they didn't have cause to be troubled because they did. They knew that, that something was happening. They might not have fully understand the scope of it, the range of it, but they knew that a storm was coming and they were in the very teeth of it. And he takes a moment to encourage them, to keep them focused, to keep them steady, to keep them moving forward. Have you had moments like that in your life? Are you at a moment like, like that in your life? Are you challenged? Are the waves of struggle and, and turmoil and, and worry and anxiety and dread and fear, are they coming in upon your boat? Are you worried about tomorrow? Are you apprehensive about next week? Have you received some news which is dire? Is your imagination starting to run away with it? Are you starting to heap upon heap upon heap of trouble, of trouble, of trouble, and you're focusing on it? Are you in a panic 
Are you worried? Certainly, let's be honest. We all can have times in our lives where we can be surrounded by troubles. We all can have times where we are anxious, where we're worried, where we're in stress, where we're sometimes even in dread and fear for tomorrow. It's part of being human. We, we encounter things all the time that would challenge us. Some of us hear news from, uh, uh, from the doctor or from loved ones that is really serious and rocks us. And we get into that mindset of panic, of worry, of stress. Things can happen. The distance that we have from each other can be off-putting as well because we don't often reach out to each other. We sometimes isolate ourselves because we're social distancing and we don't reach out to someone who might be in need, which we don't know. Let me encourage you today, reach out to someone. Just reach out and contact someone. If you go to this church, you're a member of this congregation, you know people, reach out to them. Make contact with them just to say hello, just to say I'm thinking about you, just to say you're praying for them. They might not even have a, a troubles in their hearts, but it's good to do it. It's good to, to share that with each other. Sometimes we can have doubts. We can have disappointments, discouragements. We can be let down and, and disgusted with other Christians, maybe even Christian leaders sometimes who let us down. We can, we can have all these things coming upon us and coming against us every day. And Jesus starts and he speaks to the disciples. And it's a word to us, really. Let not your heart be troubled. You notice the way he words it there, the way he phrases it? Let not your heart be troubled. He doesn't speak to them all and say, he is speaking to them all, but he doesn't say to them all, guys, let not your hearts be troubled. He specifically uses the singular for the word heart. Let not your heart be troubled. Each man would have heard that as a personal command or as personal advice from Jesus. So too we can hear that personally. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. It will be. There's things that happened that happen, but we don't need to be sucked into it. We don't need to be enamored by it. We can borrow. Are we borrowing today from tomorrow's troubles? Are we dwelling on yesterday's disasters? Are you stuck in the headlights of distress, allowing something to fill your view, to fill your mind, to fill your heart, which is not good, which is not positive, which is uh, uh, bad? The good news is that God wants you to succeed. He wants you to prosper spiritually. He wants you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. He wants us as men and women of God, as boys and girls of God, to grow up in the word, to grow up in our experience with him, to go forward in our experience for, with him. He doesn't want us to be stagnant and stuck. He doesn't want us to be so troubled by the things of this world that we have no range, no scope, and no vision for what God can do. He doesn't want us to be stuck there. He wants us to grow up and to flourish and to move on. He wants us as his people to do well. He doesn't plan for your failure. He plans for your success. What a great truth. He tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You know, as I thought about this message, 
I started thinking about men and women in the Bible who had gone through troublesome times, who had really been in the, the crosshairs of a situation, who had people coming against them and threatening them. One such man was Elijah, the prophet Elijah. was a great prophet, did some mighty miracles. Pastor spoken on about him before. He was, a, he was a wonderful prophet. He was in Israel in the northern kingdom. He was challenging Ahab and Jezebel, challenging the way that they were leading the people. You're meant to lead the people in a godly way, he said to them in, in his actions. You're meant to lead them in the things of God and you're distracting them. You're leading them astray. And it all came to a head in 1 Kings 18, it came to a head and he got to that point and he challenged him. He says, right, bring the prophets of Baal to this mountain and we'll both make altars and we'll, we'll call our God, your gods, and I'll call God to call fire down upon the altar. And the God who does that is the God that we'll worship. You remember the story from 1 Kings 18. You should read it yourselves. And what he does is he calls, they call down fire. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Then he actually pours water over the altar. He's got a soggy altar and he calls down fire from heaven and God answers by fire. And the fire burns up the sacrifice, burns the altar and licks up the, the, the water. And then Elijah goes and he slays all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them. What a great triumph. What a moment for the leaders of the nation to turn their eyes again towards God, to turn the people's hearts towards God. What a moment. You've got an opportunity. 1 Kings 19 starts with that information getting to Jezebel. Ahab had been there, the king. And what he had done is he had watched as a bystander. And what he did was he went home to his wife, the queen, who was a foreigner, and had, brought, had promoted all these foreign gods. And he brought the news to her and told her. And it's 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read two verses here. It says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah after she had heard the news, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do, if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. You've killed them. I'm going to kill you. This is coming from the queen. This has got a lot of authority behind it, a lot of uh, 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 equipment behind it, a lot of power behind it. And verse number three says, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. It says, and when he saw that, See, he had been there and he had killed the, the prophets of Baal. He had seen what God had done and he had participated in it. Now she has said that I'm going to do the same to you. And he now saw because of her words and because of the report, he saw what she was going to do in his mind. His heart and his imagination were filled with his images of him getting killed, of him being slow, slain before the people of the, the voice and the, 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 the testimony of God and the nation being wiped out. He imagined it. He saw it. It became something to him that was real and he acted upon his fear. He acted upon that trouble and he fled and he went to Beersheba and he left his servant there and it says that he went off into the wilderness. He was inconsolable. 
He sat in the wilderness and he had a supernatural intervention. God came to him. God sent an angel to him with food to sustain him. And then went back again with food. He brought him food twice, this angel, to sustain him and to help him. And it says for 40 days and 40 nights, he did nothing. He was catatonic. He was so consumed with what he had seen that there was no range, there was no options of anything else. He was so consumed with that moment, with that idea, with that threat, with that danger, that his heart was filled with fear and with dread and foreboding. It's terrible. It's a tragedy. When you read the passages, when you read the idea, when you read it and you see that this man of God who's been mighty one moment has now been humbled and brought to the point where he really doesn't do anything else. It goes on actually, as you read on through the passages and you come to 1 Kings 19 verse 16. What God has started to do is he's told Elijah, I want you to go and anoint a new king. And I want you to anoint a king here in Syria and one here as well. And he says also to him in verse number 16, and Elisha, the son of Sahat of Abdel Meloha, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So God had done something supernatural to try and encourage him to lift him up, to get him back onto the mission field, as it were, to get him back out as a voice to the people. And he hadn't responded. He couldn't shake that trouble off his heart. It had got to the point that it gripped him. And now his position as a prophet, his seat, as it were, was now given to another. It's quite a warning, isn't it? And I love this about the Bible. I love that the scriptures are honest about these things. Elijah was a man of faith and a man of power. Uh, He did great things, but he was a man. We are men and women. We're normal. He was normal people like us. But thankfully, not all the people of God have fallen and stumbled and struggled like this. Yes, they've faced troubles. Think of Daniel. He's another one, isn't he? He faced great hardships. He was in Jerusalem, happy in the king's palace, maybe one of the family of the king, taken by Nebuchadnezzar off to Babylon, now adapting to a totally new culture, totally new way of living, maybe totally new clothes, totally new language, adapting to that. And then another kingdom comes in. He had adapted to the Babylonian way of doing things. And then in comes the Medes and the Persians under Darius. And they come in and they, 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 they take the kingdom. They come in like a storm. And it wasn't a peaceful transition of power. These men didn't come in and say, right, we're the new leaders. We're the new governors of this land. We're the new people in control. Babylonians, you're out. No, no, no. They would have gone through the palace whenever they had captured the place, rounding up people, killing people. It doesn't tell us what happened to the royal family, to, but it's safe to assume that they were killed or at least taken off as hostages. Certainly there was violence. So here Daniel's in a situation where he has to, he has to adapt again to another way of living, to another environment, to another political situation. And God blessed him. 
because he was, a, he was a gifted man. He was blessed by God. He was favored by God. God had equipped him and prepared him. And here he's adapting again. And we know the story where people were in power with Daniel and they resented him. They didn't appreciate uh, his, the way he had a relationship with the king. He didn't appreciate the way that he had the king's ear because they still remembered that he was a foreigner. He wasn't even a Babylonian, he was a Jew. He had enemies around him. We have enemies. I'm not talking about people out there in the street. Yes, we might have people who we strongly disagree with or people disagree with us, but we have an enemy. Scriptures tell us that there is an enemy of our souls who goes about as a roaring lion. He goes about spreading fear, spreading distrust, spreading lies, spreading deceit. And as a people of God, often we are his targets, especially if we are walking in the purposes of God. The enemy's out there, stirring up things against us, stirring up people against us, creating troubles for us. Daniel had these enemies and they plotted against him and they passed the law. They talked Darius into passing a law that banned prayer or petition to any other being other than the king. You can read it in, in Daniel chapter six. And he, they banned it, they, they passed the law to ban it. And Daniel heard of this. In Daniel, Daniel chapter six and verse number 10, it says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room with his window open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, that gets me excited. That gets me excited. He, he heard of the troubles. He heard that there was a threat on his life. Maybe not his personal, but he knew that if anyone petitioned anyone other than Darius, that there was a threat in their lives, they were going to the lion's den. He knew that there was a threat it was hanging over them. He could have said, I'm going to fast prayer for Lent and everything would have been okay. He could have said, you know what? I'm, maybe I'll just skip it for a wee while and I'll focus just on the word, which is not a bad thing to focus on the word. But he says, no, I'm, I've got a window to go to. I've got a window I need to go to. Now it wasn't the window. The window is irrelevant. The point was that he had a relationship with God and the window symbolized that relationship with God. And he said, I'm not going to let these troubles overwhelm me. The threat of violence, the threat, threat of danger, just as Elijah had a threat from the, king, from the queen, here da Daniel's got a threat from the king because it's, on, it's in his laws. Daniel said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. He had a window, but more importantly, he had a place in his heart that was not troubled. He wasn't moved by what he heard. He wasn't moved by the troubles that were coming against him, by the threats. He would not allow his troubles to dictate his relationship with God. He would not allow his troubles to prevent him from going on with God. That's an important lesson for us, isn't it? Don't let what we're going through today, good or bad, affect us going on with God tomorrow. Don't, don't make this a full stop in your life. 
Don't make this struggle, this trial, this trouble that you're in become a full stop to your Christian walk with God. Because it's not a sin to be troubled. It's not a sin to be uh, overwhelmed at times. It's not a sin to, to question or to doubt. It's what you do with it. Do you dwell upon it? Do you get stuck in that moment? Do you become like Elijah and become catatonic and, and just, that's it. I'm not going to go any further. See, God wants you to move on. He wants you to grow. He wants us to, to remain in his purposes and his plans for our life lives. He wants us to do well. He wants us to succeed. The enemy doesn't. The enemy wants you to stop. The enemy wants you to, to camp at this disaster, at this dread, at this trouble and go no further. But God wants you to go on with that. Elijah remained in that place. Discouragement, disappointment with the God, disappointment with his followers, disappointment with the leaders of the nation. Daniel refused to remain in the place of trouble. Instead, he went to his window where he met with God Almighty. Praise the Lord. Glory to God in heaven. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. It's wonderful news. It's wonderful inspiration for us, encouragement for us to keep going, to keep on moving on. Jesus was troubled by what he was going to face. He struggled with it. But he did not allow that trouble to stop him from accomplishing the Father's plan. He didn't let that trouble overwhelm him. He says he set his face as a flint and he went, I'm doing it. Doesn't mean he wasn't troubled because he was. He tells us that in John 13. But he went ahead. He didn't let the trouble stop him from going forward. The second part of our verse this morning is in John 14, one is, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is not a suggestion by Jesus. He's giving advice for how to get out of that moment of trouble, out of that step, out of that stuck in that moment, out of that trouble, how to get past that. Jesus is saying, you believe in God, believe in me. With the same manner in which you believe, trust and have faith in God, have that same level of belief, trust and faith in Jesus. You know what? It's easier for us to say that now. It really is. When you think about it, as far as they were concerned, he was the Messiah. They didn't have a full understanding or revelation that he was the third person of the Trinity, the son of God, divine himself. We have such a greater understanding of who he is. What he says here is you believe in theos. God is theos, which is a supreme divine ruler and judge of all the universe. This is who you believe in. Believe in me also. The one sent by God, not only to teach, but to bring good news, who actually is the good news. The one who is here to redeem and to save you. He is the good news. Believe in him. Have as much confidence in him as you have in God. He tells them. This clause, 
Dr. Dotteridge interprets this clause and he says, believe in God, the almighty guardian of his servants, faithful servants, who has made such glorious promises to prosper and succeed, the clause in which you are in, the cause in which you are engaged. Believe in God, the almighty guardian of his faithful servants, who has made such glorious promises to prosper and succeed the cause in which you are engaged and believe also in me. As the promised Messiah, who whether present or absent in body, shall always be mindful of your concerns as well as ever able to help you. Glory to God. What a saviour. What a saviour. Scriptures tell us that right now he ever lives to make intercession for us. You know, he's thinking of us. In that moment of, of panic, of fear, of dread, he's praying for us. Remember his words to Peter? Peter, Peter, the, de- the enemy wants to, s- to sift you as wheat, but I pray that your faith faileth not. He's praying for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to move forward, to grow, to, to, to rise up as men and women of God, to be all that he has called us to be. It's important that we remind ourselves of that. And we have hope in him. It's important that we have hope in him and who he is. Alexander McLaren, talking about the same verse, he said, the 12 were sitting in the upper chamber, stupefied with the dreary, half-understood prospect of Christ's departure. He, forgetting his own burden, turns to comfort and encourage them. These sweet and great words most singularly blend gentleness and dignity. Who can reproduce the candence of soothing tenderness soft as a mother's hand in that let not your heart be troubled and who can fail to feel the tone of majesty in that believe in God, believe also in me. What a wonderful saviour. He spoke to his disciples in that moment when they were struggling, when they were about to go into the Passion Week Christ was going to go through what he was going to go through, but they were going to face their own problems. They were going to face their own strife and struggles. And he said to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And that's a word to us today, isn't it? Wherever you are and whatever you're going through today, let me say to you, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus. No problem is so big, no mountain is so great that Jesus can't help you. He is a a God of all the universe. He loves us. He died for us. He's paid a price for us. I've gone through things in my life and those words have come back to me. He didn't build his home in me to move away. He didn't teach me to swim to let me drown. And it's wonderful truth in that, isn't there? That he has invested in you. He wants to see you succeed. He wants to see you get past your troubles. Maybe even just insulate you from the troubles. Don't let them become overwhelming in your heart. He loves you and he wants to see you rising up as a man and woman of God. He doesn't want to see you catatonic like Elijah in the wilderness, doing nothing, struggling, 
a full stop at your, at your life. He doesn't want that at all. He wants your story to continue. He wants you to move on and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. Lord God in heaven, we praise you. Lord, we just take a moment and we praise you. We thank you that you're our God. We thank you, Lord in heaven, that you know us. You know what we're like. You know how our minds work and how our hearts work. You know how we can struggle with things of this world. You know we can struggle, how we struggle when we sometimes hear from a doctor a bad report. You know how we struggle when we hear people who speak against us, when we have things happen in our lives, when we have things happen in our households. You know how those things become major to us and how important they are to us, really, Lord. But we thank you, dear God, in heaven that you are greater than all our problems. We thank you, dear God, in heaven that we can turn to you in our need, Lord, that we can turn to you, Lord, in our trouble, that we can turn to you, Lord, in our distress, knowing that you are our God, knowing that your ear is ever open unto our cry, knowing that you love us. Lord, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you that you are God and you love us. Lord, And we turn to you and we say that we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for who you are. Amen and amen.